At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 9, The Marshall Plan. So last episode, we reviewed the initial American response to Stalin's moves in Eastern Europe and how the United States would attempt to contain the Soviet Union and communism, blocking its further advance into other industrialized regions of the world like Western Europe and Japan. In this episode, I want to take a deeper look at one of the cornerstones of this early containment strategy, the Marshall Plan. I know we have spoken about the Marshall Plan in past episodes, but given its importance, I think it deserves an episode of its own. That being said, there are two popular histories of the Marshall Plan. The first is that the Marshall Plan saved Western Europe from starvation, stopped the spread of communism, and rebuilt Western Europe. The second view is that the Marshall Plan is overrated and only marginally helped Western Europe. This theory posits that A, Europe was damaged by the war, but that its economic foundations were still intact, and that even without Marshall aid, Europe would have recovered from the war by the mid-1950s. Second, European cooperation and not American funds is what made Western European prosperity possible. Finally, this theory views American aid as a ploy to open up Western Europe and their colonial markets to American goods and as a means by which to attract the nations of Eastern Europe out of the Soviet Union's orbit. Noam Chomsky, for example, noted that the amount of American dollars given to France and the Netherlands equaled the funds these countries used to finance their military actions against their colonial subjects in East Asia. However, to be fair, in January 1949, the American government suspended this aid in response to the Dutch efforts to restore colonial rule in Indonesia during the Indonesian National Revolution, and it implicitly threatened to suspend martial aid to the Netherlands if the Dutch government continued to oppose the independence of Indonesia. Nevertheless, both of these popular histories have some elements of truth to them, but what I would like to do in this episode is unpack the Marshall Plan and examine it as accurately as possible, understanding what happened and what the plan did and didn't do. I think the first point is to emphasize and take a deeper look at the total devastation of Europe in the wake of World War II, specifically focusing on Western Europe as the area under American and British occupation. If you're interested in what the post-war period looked like in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, check out episode four of the series. Living in the 21st century, with few people now alive from that period, I think it's difficult for us today to grasp the level of destruction that befell Europe after the Second World War. That said, I will try and paint as accurate a picture as I can of the situation. I must warn you, I'm about to describe some very unpleasant but true events as they played out after the war. By the end of World War II, much of Europe was shattered. Sustained aerial bombardment during the war had badly damaged most cities, and industrial facilities were especially hard hit. 
The Luftwaffe had dropped some 5,000 bombs on Britain during the Blitz, destroying some 202,000 homes and damaging a further 4.5 million. Clydebank, a relatively small industrial town outside Glasgow, for instance, of its 12,000 homes, only eight escaped damage from the war. In France, the damage was more concentrated. Caen, for example, was virtually leveled after the Allied invasion of Normandy in 1944. In all, 460,000 homes were destroyed and a further 1.9 million damaged in France. In Germany, an estimated 20 million people were rendered homeless as a result of the war. In West Germany, bombing had destroyed 5 million homes and apartments. People lived in cellars, ruins, and literally holes dug into the ground. In most places, essential services like sanitation, gas, water, and electricity had broken down for millions across Europe. Even in London, electricity was cut during daylight hours. The British people became accustomed to bathing infrequently. In Paris, both water and electricity was infrequent. In the countryside, farms were destroyed, plundered, flooded, or simply neglected as a result of the war. The marshes in southern Italy were flooded by the retreating German army to slow the advance of the Allies. These marshes had been painstakingly drained to stop the spread of disease. But with the waters back, this led to an outbreaks of malaria as mosquitoes reclaimed the marshes. More than half a million acres of Holland were ruined when the Germans there opened the dikes again in an attempt to slow the Allied advance. As you can imagine, famine was a serious problem. By the time the Allies arrived in Holland, the nation was on the verge of starvation. An estimated 150,000 Dutch were suffering from dropsy. Basically, your limbs begin to swell and you feel immense pain as a result of starvation. Amsterdam had 5,000 people die of starvation, with Holland experiencing an estimated 20,000 deaths from starvation overall. Housewives in Rome were rioting over food prices in 1944, and a hunger march was organized that December. The official ration in Vienna hovered around 800 calories, for most of 1945. By 1947, strikes were at 1,131 across Italy in reference to food shortages. The average adult requires about 2,500 calories a day to keep themselves healthy and more if they are involved with hard labor. Critically, this amount cannot be made up of carbohydrates alone. If they are, if they are to avoid hunger-related illnesses, it must contain vitamins supplied by fresh vegetables, proteins, and fats. As the war had progressed, the Nazis had systematically robbed and starved its occupied territories to feed its own people, meaning that much of Europe had been existing in a subsistence level since 1941 or 1942. By the end of the war, you would have expected the food situation to get a little better, but food shortages were severe, especially in the harsh winter of 1946-1947. In Germany, food production was only two-thirds of the pre-war levels in 1946 and 1948. The winter of 46-47 was the coldest since 1880, causing canals to freeze, making roads impassable for weeks, and shutting down rail lines. The winter was followed by flooding in many parts of Europe. Then, beginning in June, Europe experienced one of the hottest, driest summers on record, destroying crops everywhere and creating forest fires in Germany. The poor harvest of 1947 meant for many countries Farming uh, production went down. In France, the wheat harvest was the smallest since the days of Napoleon. In Germany, doctors positioned to alter the German laws to allow abortions in the first three months because German women were in such poor health that they couldn't nurse their infants. In Germany and Austria, caloric intake averaged just 1,500 per, per day, and 60% of that was from potatoes and bread. 
In Italy, it was 1800, and in France, between 15 to 1800. Even in Great Britain, which was much better off than mainland Europe, caloric intake had dropped below 1945 levels. As food such as butter, bacon, meat, and tea were still rationed, men and women literally collapsed at their jobs from lack of food. The problem was not only that there was a worldwide food shortage, but that given the destruction of Europe's transportation, what food there was could not be easily distributed. After six years of total war, Europe's transportation infrastructure was shattered. Especially damaged was railways, bridges, and docks, which had been specifically targeted by airstrikes, while much merchant shipping had been sunk. The destruction of the transportation left many villages and farms economically isolated. Holland, for example, lost 60% of its roads, rail, and canal transport. Italy lost 13,000 bridges, and France had lost some 70% of their locomotives. Norway, in contrast, had lost half of its shipping. By the end of the war, the only reliable form of transportation was by foot. The region's trade flows had been thoroughly disrupted. Millions were in refugee camps living on aid from the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration and other agencies. From July 1945 through June 1946, the United States shipped 16.5 million tons of food, primarily wheat, to Europe and Japan. Many had died as well during the war. Great Britain had lost 300,000 in the war. France, half a million. Holland, 210,000. Italy, 310,000. And Germany, 6 million. Millions of people were displaced as well. Germany had some 8 million forced laborers who had been brought to Germany to work on farms and in factories. Most of them had come from the Soviet Union, Poland, and France, but significant numbers of other nationalities existed as well from throughout the former Nazi empire. These workers were not just men either. They also included women and children. The Third Reich practiced a type of warfare and slavery that had not been seen since the days of the Roman Empire. As well, there was a quarter of a million Anglo-American POWs throughout Germany. Complicating the situation further, an estimated 4.8 million German citizens were internally displaced or refugees. Many had tried to escape the major cities which had been bombed around the clock or as evacuees as they escaped the advance of the Red Army, which brutally murdered, robbed, assaulted, and raped the German population in its advance. In contrast to the American and English POWs, France, Britain, and the United States had some 7.7 million German POWs, many housed in camps in western Germany. These camps were overcrowded with unsanitary conditions and no shelter, basically open fields surrounded by bobbed wire. One of the greatest concerns was lack of food. One piece of bread was given per 25 men, and fresh water wouldn't be available sometimes for three or four days. In all, some 30,644 German POWs died in Allied cap captivity. As the war ended, millions of people poured out onto the roads attempting to locate friends, loved ones, and or make the journey home, or as many hoped, to a new and better life. The lucky ones were gathered up by the French, British, or American armies and taken to displacement centers. But in most cases, hundreds of thousands were on their own as the Allies lacked the necessary number of troops and transport vehicles to deal with the flood of refugees. As you can imagine, these conditions greatly affected people's day-to-day -day lives. Many women turned to prostitution or selling their body for food. It's common to see post-war pictures or movies of European women with British Tommies or American GI boyfriends, but many did this out of necessity and not love. Moreover, it wasn't just young women interested in Allied soldiers. Middle-aged and or married women would think nothing of selling their bodies for some sea rations or cigarettes. 
Cigarettes at this time were a virtual form of currency. Pimps and black marketeers thrived, offering fake brandy, pornography, and child prostitution as young as 10. Children in general during this period suffered greatly. They themselves were caught up in the sex trade, selling their own bodies, and it was not uncommon for brothers to pimp their sisters. Children also lived in a dangerous physical environment. Old munitions and weapons and landmine fields littered Europe, killing children on a daily basis. Theft and looting had become endemic as well. Theft had become so common that it became normal and, and ceased to be regarded as a crime. This had its origins in the war. There in their respective Nazi occupations, the legitimate police were replaced by the Nazis with corrupt collaborators who themselves were thieves. Partisans in response stole from the local populace so that the collaborators or Nazis couldn't steal from the people. During the Allied occupation, these officials were replaced by Allied, inexperienced officers who had very little understanding of the native language, let alone the local issues and history. Allied supplies were stolen regularly, as things like food, cigarettes, and candy bars were sold in the black market. Post-war Berlin, according to one historian, became the crime capital of the world, with 2,000 arrests a month. Violence was also a serious problem throughout Europe. Studies have proven that those who experience intense violence on a regular basis become more prone to use violence to solve disputes or to get what they want. Many Europeans had both served in the army or partisan units and in many cases committed violence against their own people they considered to be collaborators. After the war, thousands of trials and the proverbial street justice was dealt out to these collaborators. In France and northern Italy, huge swaths of territory were virtually ruled by these partisan forces. Millions of starving and desperate people were willing to sacrifice all their moral values to get their next meal or to make it through one more day. None of these problems could be easily remedied, as most of the nations engaged in the war had exhausted their treasuries in the process. The only major power whose infrastructure had not been significantly harmed in World War II was the United States. European economies were recovering slowly as unemployment and food shortages led to strikes and unrest in several nations. In 1947, the European economies were still well below their pre-war levels and were showing few signs of growth. Agricultural production was 83% of 1938 levels, industrial production was 88%, and exports only 59%. By July 1947, Washington realized that economic recovery in Europe could not go forward without the reconstruction of the German industrial base. In addition, the strength of Moscow-controlled communist parties in France and Italy worried many in government. In France, for example, the first cabinet of the Fourth French Republic had four communists, one of which was the Minister of Defense. Many people were joining the Communist Party around the world out of desperation, pragmatism, cynicism, or ideology. Capitalism and liberal democracy had failed cat catastrophically in the 1930s, and many were ready to try something different. Many European elites discovered that by emphasizing communist concerns to the Americans, they gained greater attention and, and aid. But European conservatives and even socialists genuinely believed that the communists and the Soviets would try and exploit the economic chaos. The Americans feared that if Western Europe ran out of dollars to rebuild its economy, political chaos would return and the Europeans might embrace socialism as the answer to their problems, thus cutting off America from its largest trade market and returning the world to the Great Depression and the political chaos of the 1930s. As you will recall from our last episode, American strategy in the early Cold War was to contain the Soviet Union and Marxism partly through foreign aid. The Americans had some experience with foreign aid. In World War I, Herbert Hoover became famous for his international relief program for the Belgian war victims. 
After the war, he took leadership of the American Relief Administration, or ARA, for which Congress appropriated $100 million. Hoover came to virtually control all of the post-war aid to Europe, directing some 19 million tons of food, clothing, and supplies to the people of 22 nations. After 1919, when funding for the ARA had been cut, Hoover raised $30 million privately for the children of Europe and was able to get additional aid to victims of the Russian Civil War when he became Secretary of Commerce under President Warren Harding. During the Second World War, the United States had provided aid through Lend-Lease to help the British, Chinese, and Soviets fight the Axis powers. By the time Lend-Lease had ended, the United States had lent some $49 billion. The United States was already spending a great deal to help Europe recover from World War II. Over $14 billion was spent or loaned during the post-war period through the end of 1947 and is not counted as part of the Marshall Plan. Much of this aid was designed to restore infrastructure and help refugees. Britain, for example, received an emergency loan of $3.75 billion. In return, they dismantled their imperial trading bloc. The Americans used this aid to achieve their objective of reintegrating the world economy. During the 1930s, the British had created an economic bloc in their own empire to shut out American goods. Yet American elites in business and government were determined to open Britain's markets to free trade. Combined American and British trade accounted for more than half of the world's trade. If the British markets could be opened, the United States would be well on its way to opening the entire global marketplace. France received similar treatment at the hands of the Americans when de Gaulle agreed to a billion-dollar loan in exchange for France opening up its markets, curtailing government subsidies and currency manipulation, which had given French exports advantages in the world marketplace. The United Nations had also launched a series of humanitarian relief efforts almost wholly funded by the United States. These efforts had important effects, but they lacked any central organization and planning and failed to meet many of Europe's more fundamental needs. Already in 1943, the United Nations Relief Rehabilitation Administration, or UNRRA, was founded to provide relief to areas liberated from Germany. The UNRRA provided billions of dollars of rehabilitation aid and helped about 8 million refugees but ceased operations of displaced person camps in Europe in 1947. However, the Europeans quickly burnt through these funds, which were meager into what they needed. In January 1947, Truman appointed retired General George Marshall as Secretary of State. Marshall was the Chief of Staff and the great organizer of victory during World War II. He was immensely respected in government, overseas, and among the American people. Marshall was so popular that he was Time Magazine's 1943 Man of the Year. After the adjournment of the Moscow Conference following six weeks of failed discussions with the Soviets regarding a potential German reconstruction, the United States concluded that a solution could not wait any longer. Marshall, who had personally met with Stalin, believed that the Soviet Union was not negotiating in good faith. Marshall believed that Stalin saw the best way to achieve his goals was to let Europe drift into starvation and political chaos, hence leading to more Marxist governments in Europe and greater political influence and safety for the Soviet Union. To clarify the U.S. position, a major speech was planned. Marshall gave the address to the graduating class of Harvard University on June 5, 1947. He offered American aid to promote European recovery and reconstruction. The speech described the dysfunction of the European economy and presented a rationale for U.S. aid. Marshall and George Kennan believed that it was necessary to invite the Russians to participate for public relations purposes and as a way for the plan to not look hostile to the Soviets. Privately, though, they didn't want the Soviets to participate. 
Soviet participation in the program would kill its chances of getting through the Congress and balloon the cost of the program. The Soviets reacted with mixed messages. Pravda attacked the American plan as American imperialism. Other Soviet officials, such as Yegven Yargov, the Soviet economist, argued that Americans were afraid of the economic situation in Europe and the plan should be considered. Marshall also believed that it was necessary for the Europeans to draft their own joint plan of recovery versus imposing an American plan, which he believed would be ill-received. The Americans also wanted to see a united Europe, which they believed would be a better trading partner for the U.S. and better able to stand up to Stalin. British Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan heard Marshall's radio broadcast speech and immediately contacted French Foreign Minister George Baudalt to begin preparing a quick European response and acceptance of the, off- the offer which led to the creation of the Committee of European Economic Cooperation. The two agreed that it would be necessary to invite the Soviets as the other major allied power. The Europeans arranged three conferences to draft a plan for European recovery. The first conference was between France and Britain. The second was between France, Britain, and the Soviet Union. The Soviets gave the plan serious consideration. Molotov and 89 other Soviet economic experts and clerks arrived in Paris in June 1947 to review the proposal. The Soviets proposed that each nation submit a plan for recovery to the Americans. However, the British and French wanted to submit a European-wide plan for recovery. They argued over the restrictions being placed on Germany and Italy. The Americans wanted to rebuild Germany, whereas the Soviets did not want to see a revived Germany, which had invaded Russia twice in the last 40 years. Within a week, Molotov and the Soviet delegation left angry, returning to Moscow. The third conference was between the remaining 14 European nations, Britain and France, to finalize the plan to present to the Americans for rebuilding Europe. Then, at the American request, all 16 nations flew to Washington to formalize the final agreement. Although all other communist European countries had deferred to Stalin and rejected the aid, the Yugoslavs, led by Joseph Tito, at first went along and rejected the Marshall Plan. However, in 1948, Tito broke decisively with Stalin on other issues, making Yugoslavia an independent communist state. Yugoslavia requested American aid. American leaders were internally divided but finally agreed and began sending money on a small scale in 1949 and on a much larger scale in 1950 to 1953. The American aid was not part of the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan was also significant as it was a sign that the United States would not recede into isolationism as it had at the end of World War I. Marshall pointed to the Second World War as the price of American isolation in the 1920s and 1930s. In many ways, as well, the Marshall Plan had grown out of the spirit of the New Deal and the Bretton Woods Agreement, which sought to stabilize the world economy through the IMF and World Bank. Marshall had to get the plan through Congress, though. From the outset, Marshall never downplayed the costs and the risks of the plan. He told the American people that the program would be a burden and cost billions and require sacrifices, but that it was necessary to ensure the, the peace and prosperity of the future. In August 1947, two months after his Harvard speech, In a Gallup poll, 59% of people asked knew about the plan, and 50% of those who knew about the plan approved. In February 1948, a month after his testimony to Congress, 86% of those questioned knew about it, and and 77% approved of the plan, believing that we ought to do our best to support the people of Europe. Truman and the Democrats, though, had been suffering at the polls as of late. The Democrats had lost control of Congress for the first time since the 1930s and 1946. 
Also in 1946, Truman's Universal Health Care and his Employment Act had gone down to defeat. Truman experienced more setbacks when Congress overrode his veto to put in place Taft-Hartley. But Marshall was far more popular with Congress and the nation than Truman. Marshall also played up the Soviet opposition to European recovery and the danger of communism. He also had many Republican politicians and businessmen who came out in support of the plan, including both Dulles brothers, former President Hoover, and Philip, Phil Reed, the chairman of General Electric. Truman supported by also playing up the Soviet threat to Europe by explaining to Congress that if they did nothing, Europe would fall to communism and that this was part of a larger communist conspiracy for world domination. This ploy worked, but the national fear level had been artificially risen and the Republicans would become ever more radical in their opposition to communism in the years to come. Under these circumstances, it became impossible for the isolationist Republicans to stop the bill. On midnight, March the 14th, 1948, in a bipartisan vote, 69 to 17, the Senate approved the European Recovery Program, or ERP, and a week later it was approved by a bipartisan majority in the House. There were provisions in the bill, though. 50% of all goods had to be sent in American ships. A House watchdog group was established to watch over spending, and an agency, the ECA, was established to administer the aid. To further secure the success and bipartisan nature of the bill, the president selected Paul Hoffman, a Republican from the business world who had run Studebaker Company, to head the ECA. Overall, the Marshall Plan would invest $13 billion, or roughly $130 billion in 2016 dollars, into European recovery. The Marshall Plan would absorb some 10% of the federal budget. The biggest thing the Marshall Plan allowed for was for European nations to invest in their infrastructure while rebuilding their services and investing in their citizens, avoiding austerity measures and cutbacks in social welfare that would have in increased political instability. The Americans, though, were clear with the French and the Italians that they wanted the communists out of government in their respective countries if they wanted funds. Marshall went so far as to telling the Italians that if the communists won the April elections of 1948, the Americans would take it that they didn't want to participate in the Marshall Plan. In both France and Italy, the communists were marginalized and pushed out of government office with the help of the CIA. While Germany struggled to recover from the destruction of the war, the recovery effort began in June 1948. The currency reform in 1948 were introduced by the military government and helped Germany to restore stability by encouraging production. They revalued old currency and deposits and introduced new currency. Taxes were also reduced, and Germany's prepared to remove economic barriers. European per capita income rose to $422 against American per capita income of $1,300. The Marshall Plan elevated European living to the point where it was above starvation but considerably below comfort level. The aid was dispersed in three different forms. A, a grant. 90% of the Marshall Plan was given as a grant. It basically amounted to a gift. The country received the grant, and they did not have to repay it. It was controlled by the recipient state. It could even be resold by the state to raise funds, which many states did. B, as a loan. These were low-interest loans that nations didn't have to begin repaying on for years. C, as conditional aid. Conditional aid was complex. Typically, these were funds given by the ECA that were drawn against loans of other creditor nations. For example, the ECA funds would be provided to Britain to forgive debts that Italy owed to Great Britain. The Marshall Plan, though, was primarily composed of goods from America, such as fuel, 
food, animal feed, fertilizer, raw materials, machines, vehicles, equipment, and parts. The Marshall Plan had an impact on many Europeans' day-to-day lives. In Holland, steel workers got steel they needed to, to build new docks and bridges. In Norway, fishermen got new nets. In Denmark, farmers received fresh feed for their animals. In France, textile workers were able to get their plants back online. The Marshall Plan was originally scheduled to end in 1953. Any effort to extend it was halted by the growing cost of the Korean War and rearmament. Many American Republicans hostile to the plan had also gained seats in the 1950 congressional elections, and conservative opposition to the plan was revived. Thus, the plan ended in roughly 1951, though various other forms of American aid to Europe continued afterwards. The years 1948 to 1952 saw the fastest period of growth in European history. Industrial production increased by 35%. Agricultural production substantially surpassed pre-war levels. The poverty and starvation of the immediate post-war years disappeared, and Western Europe embarked upon an unprecedented two decades of growth that saw standards of living increase dramatically. The political effects of the Marshall Plan may have been just as important as the economic ones. Marshall Plan aid allowed the nations of Western Europe to relax austerity measures and rationing, reducing discontent and bringing political stability. The communist influence on Western Europe was greatly reduced, and throughout the region, communist parties faded in popularity in the years after the Marshall Plan. The trade relations fostered by the Marshall Plan helped forge the North Atlantic Alliance that would persist throughout the Cold War. At the same time, the non-participation of the states of Eastern Europe was one of the first clear signs that the continent was now divided. The Marshall Plan also played an important role in European integration. Both the Americans and many of the European leaders felt that European integration was necessary to secure the peace and prosperity of Europe, and thus used the Marshall Plan as guidelines to foster integration. In some ways, this effort failed, as the OEEC never grew to be more than an agent of economic cooperation. Rather, it was the separate European coal and steel community, which notably excluded Britain, that would eventually grow into the European Union. However, the OEEC served as both a testing and training ground for the structures that would later be used by the European economic community. In conclusion, the Marshall Plan did, in effect, save Europe from being economically crippled for decades. It is doubtful that Europe would have been able to overcome these economic challenges by themselves or that Western Europe would be as prosperous as it is today without the Marshall Plan. I seriously take issue with the idea that Europe's economic foundations were intact after the war. The Marshall Plan did achieve its objectives of creating relative political and economic stability in Western Europe, marginalizing the growth of communism there. However, in some ways, it escalated the Cold War. And not coming to some type of understanding with Stalin, if one was possible, and trying to attract the eastern states out of Moscow's orbit, it provoked the Soviets to do what the Americans had feared, which was to establish authoritarian satellite states in Eastern Europe. Now, it's true that Marshall Plan funds came with strings attached, and the Americans certainly had their own political and economic interest in lending the money. But I believe it would be foolish for the Americans or any people to lend that type of money without taking their own interest into consideration. I think much of the revisionist critique of the Marshall Plan is taken from the perspective of American international politics in the early 21st century. Basically, these critiques are taking the Marshall Plan and trying to make it fit into their current view of American foreign policy. I think people tend to forget that all great powers are capable of doing good and bad things and that states are not people, but complex organizations with different factions and competing agendas and interests.
The idea that the Marshall Plan was imperialist is preposterous. Germany and France today are independent nations and not states in the United States. No one builds an empire by giving food and money away. Many conspiracies view the Marshall Plan as some crypto-U.S. right-wing plot for economically dominating Europe, when in reality the plan grew out of the best traditions of FDR and the New Deal and helped millions of individual Europeans survive and rebuild their lives. The other idea that European unity was more important than the Marshall Plan, I think, is overemphasizing European uh, cooperation at this point in time. If anything, European unity was, uh, was an uphill battle for the Americans and Europeans. European efforts at integrating and the ECC helped the long-term economic development of Europe. But it didn't exist nor have the funds that the Marshall Plan provided to restart the European economies in the early 1950s. I want to thank you for listening to Episode 9, The Marshall Plan. Join us for Episode 10, Cold War in the Mediterranean, 1945 to 1950, where we'll be looking at the events of the early Cold War in the states of the Mediterranean. Feel free to comment and rate us on iTunes, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook at the History of the Cold War Podcast and Twitter at Cold War Podcast to find our latest news and Cold War content. Or feel free to email questions to coldwarpodcasts at gmail.com. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.